0: Tēnā koutou. We'll Ta'roha, the air with te, aroha. te aroha. Te
1: aroha, in a conference room in an upmarket hotel in Auckland, stories of lives ruined are being told. It is the first time survivors have given their accounts to a public hearing of the Royal Commission into abuse in state and faith-based care.
2: We've heard from 10 abuse survivors in the past fortnight, and there are thousands.
1: There is a belief in this country that when children are removed and raised by somebody else, that they will become somebody else. I can tell you that is not so. Trapped, abused, and afraid, the stories of disabled people in state care have had an airing at the Royal Commission today.
3: Sociologist Dr. Bridget Murphy and has been researching the stories and says abuse became the norm for the silent majority of disabled people in care.
0: He was immediately placed in what the Department of Social Welfare terms secure care, which is in fact solitary confinement.
1: I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail I talk to RNZ's Katie Scotcher. She's one of the few journalists who's been covering every day of the public hearings.
2: It's being held, I I think this is kind of a funny detail, it's being held at the Ridges Hotel in Auckland in this room that's normally used for sensory dining experiences and I've actually been to the sensory dining experience before and it's normally this dining in the dark thing and it's this blacked out room and the ridges hotel is down the road from the sky tower very fancy hotel there are sparkling water machines everywhere and it's marble and yeah it's very fancy all right so what, yeah. what does that room look like it just looks like a big conference room, really. The five commissioners are sat towards the back wall and there's a stenographer sat in, in front of them who's typing at unbelievable speeds. Then the witness, so whether that's an abuse survivor or a researcher, will sit next to the stenographer. And then there are rows for council representing the Crown, churches. There's a big bench for media. And then there's a space for the public to sit. There have been mongrel mob members, there's been Tim McKinnell who's you know investigated Taina Porter and obviously has done lots of investigations since. Uh, people from Amnesty International, a total mix of people uh, just sat in this public gallery watching on. And also there's a, a person doing sign language. Yeah, the hearing has been live streamed every day and then the signers are standing next to the commissioners and are signing everything that is said and there have been some funny points where you know this is so emotionally driven and emotionally charged that people speak quite quickly and there have been countless moments where Sir Anand Sachin under the chair has had to kind of stop people and go look just please be aware that the stenographer is typing at unbelievable speeds and everyone has to slow down and
1: that first day what was the atmosphere-like. I mean, you've you've covered covered lots of court and meetings and things
2: like that. Was this any different? I had absolutely no idea what I was going to hear. You know, we were given this brief uh, rundown of the sort of evidence that we'll be hearing, and it was Arthur Taylor will talk about the abuse he experienced, but it didn't go into detail. And so I sat down, plugged myself in with the, my, my audio feed, and we heard from the first witness, and there was a morning adjournment and I walked out of the conference room and Arthur Taylor was comforting another abuse survivor who was bawling his eyes out. And that's kind of when I realised the significance and how how upsetting that this was for so many people. And it was also, it was funny seeing Arthur Taylor, someone who's kind of known as this notorious career criminal who's, you know, one of this country's longest serving prisoners comforting someone and I think it says a lot about who he is.
4: Mr Taylor can I uh, ask you to make your commencing statement under the Inquiries Act as follows. Do you solemnly sincerely and truly declare and affirm that the evidence you'll give before this commission will be the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth? I
2: do sir. Thank you. There was a lot of anticipation leading up to his evidence and he
1: in what way what do you mean by that
2: you know we've heard of his him escaping from prison and the legal battles yeah he's a jailhouse lawyer and you know Mm. but the experiences that led him to that no one really knew about he walked up to the table that they sit at as they give evidence and he spoke about the abuse that he experienced as a child and he He spoke about being put in state care after he was caught wagging school and he said that he he was wagging school because he was more intelligent than the other children in his class.
4: School got quite boring for me at times and I actually used to like to learn at my own pace so I'd uh, quite often uh, take days off school and go up to the local library because we didn't have the internet in them days and uh, learn up there out of of books and things.
2: He was picked up for wagging school because he was at the library, not class and... Was taken to a Poony boys' home in Lower Hutch and that's where the abuse started.
4: They had a massive leather strap that they used to really whip you with. You know, now I remember one night I was in the showers and I'd been whacked with the strap several times. You know, obviously for some transgression. And uh, one of the um, one of the other boys said, "Look at those big welts up your back, Arthur. You know, they were massive red welts. You know, from the strap. That's so they I've been belting the hell out of my back with this leather strap."
2: He wasn't sexually assaulted, but he knew that other children there were. And he boldly said that, you know, if he had never been placed in the care of the state, then he never would have interacted with the justice system, which is, you know, he's a man with more than 150 convictions. That's a remarkable thing to say.
4: Well, I can say without a shadow of a doubt, a shred of doubt, that if I hadn't ended up in that Pooney Boys' Home, I would never have interacted with the criminal justice system.
1: And while they're telling their story, is someone questioning them or are they just free to talk about what's happened to them?
2: So in the lead-up to this hearing, the survivors work quite closely with the inquiry's legal team. So months in advance, they're preparing the evidence they want to give and they have this kind of bundle of evidence that they... um, It's kind of like a written testimony, I Mm -hmm. guess, They basically just run through that written testimony, uh, but the, the lawyer who is working for the commission questions them and the questions are based on the evidence in that testimony and they kind of prepare and work through the sort of questions that they are comfortable being asked. There have been points where... The abuse survivors have said, actually, I don't want to answer that. It hasn't happened very often.
4: People at the hearing openly cried as former King Cobra gang member Fa'awhite Taiko
2: spoke about his experiences in care and the impact it has had on his later life. He was incredibly brave and his story was remarkable. He spoke about uh, his time growing up.
0: I used to get disciplined quite a bit. Yeah, so went off for a few years and... As you get older, you get naughty, I guess, and you get tidings get worse.
2: He's Samoan. He was talking about how church was a big part of his life and growing up, but so was the abuse that he was receiving from his father.
0: So by the time I got to about 12, 13, I, was, I knew what was coming, so I'd start running away from home and just running away and staying away. And, and I guess that's where the, I came into contact with social welfare.
2: He was one day placed in the care of the state and... He spent time at Awairaka Boys' Home.
0: I kept telling the house I wanted to go back to my mother's. (laughs) He says, nah, shut up, you're a f***ing ward of the state now, you're coming back with us to Awairaka Boys' Home.
2: Where he suffered extreme violence, and then he was placed in bore stools, he was beaten, he referred to the social welfare officers and the people at at these care homes who were mostly Pākehā, and they were very racist... They would call him Coconut Boy and he was talking about how he lost his identity and, you know, one thing led to another and he found himself in prison. He made some comment he was spending time in prison with boys that he grew up with in these state care homes.
0: Yeah, I was well and truly um, immersed in their life. And to be fair, it was the only life I knew.
2: He joined the King Cobras. After this long journey through the system, he emphasize the amount of violence
0: over the years I was in their world I realized you know I, I lost the ability to love you know the emotion to be connected to yeah and 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 for me was um a lot of the kids in their world you know don't know how to love they don't know what it means to be loved they don't know how to love back
2: talking about his five sons. He was talking about how he was a really absent father because he was on meth and behind bars and wasn't able to be there for his children and really struggled to be a father because of the abuse he experienced. And he's remarkable. He's gone on to gain a degree, a double major in sociology and Māori. He's working with the University of Auckland and researching, I guess, other people's experiences of abuse similar to his. Uh, and then, yeah, he moved on to talking about his, his family. He said that his partner helped him stop taking meth, helped him move away from that, that chapter in his life.
4: Mr Taito, I don't have any questions of you myself. I want you to, to know, and I think all of my colleagues understand how difficult it is to talk about these things, and you're yeah. very greatly respected for what you've said. Thank you. Okay.
1: <laughs> His story has, is one of the ones that have stood out for you.
2: Yeah, another is Dr Rawiri Waditini Karina.
1: The Royal Commission into Abuse in State and Faith-Based Care has today heard from a man so affected by abuse that he set fire to his sleeping father and later in life killed a man in revenge for his hurt.
2: You know, every abuse survivor who has taken this stand and spoken about what they've experienced has experienced horrendous things, but Dr he spoke about intergenerational trauma. That was kind of the overarching theme of, of his evidence his whānau go back to Waikato and he said that the, the trauma in his family started with the Waikato invasion in the 1800s and his family have been impoverished ever since.
1: Mm.
2: And his grandfather was taken into the care of the state. He only spoke today but was placed in a English school and was beaten until he learned to speak English. His father was then placed in state care and suffered extreme abuse as well. And Dr Rawiri was beaten by his father. He said his father never learned to deal with the trauma and never processed and was never helped to process what he experienced. And so he relayed his experiences onto his partner and his son.
3: Our home was very abusive. Uh, Extreme violence. Extreme childhood trauma. I experienced flashbacks of that trauma. I would go into a chance as a coping mechanism for dealing
2: with it. At one point, I think he was six years old, Had come back from care of the state, and he realised he had a younger brother now, and he was 12 months old, and there was this rainy day, you know, really heavy rain, and the streets had flooded. His dad had gone out to the pub, and I'm not sure where his mum was, but she wasn't at home, and so he, six years old, was left to care for his 12-month-old brother.
3: I knew I had to look after my brother, but I wanted to go out and play with the neighbours.
2: So he placed his infant brother out on the um, porch outside.
3: Just so I can keep an eye on him. And I went out and played. I got so engrossed in playing with my friends and neighbours.
2: And he didn't realise he was so captivated and he was enjoying himself. He was playing with these kids that he didn't realise the heavy rain had started to fall again. And
3: It was only when I heard my little brother crying that I realised.
2: And he ran inside and, you know, dried him off with a towel, but his brother caught the flu and died seven days later. He recalled the the screams of his family when his parents came home and realised, you know, what had happened. And um, he said that his mother would pray to cope with the trauma and the, the grief. And one day his father came home and beat him and his mother.
3: Something in me just just snapped, and I just remember yelling at him. And then he started hitting me. and My mum got in between, and he knocked him unconscious. I, um, he was asleep um, in the bedroom, and I set the bed on fire with a minute,
2: and was placed back in care. Much later in life, after he had spent years in the care of the state, he met up with someone who he um, knew from from the state care. He was at Tower Hill and they were discussing you know just life and this 5-year-old came up in conversation and they were talking about the fact that this 5-year-old was being beaten by his father further down the line he then met with the child's mother and they were talking about the abuse again and he said that he put his own experiences and portrayed that onto this child
3: but hearing that story impacted me to such a degree i ended up Superimposing my own story, my own history of the boy to such a degree. I went and I fought and I killed his father.
2: He was convicted of murder and spent 10 years in prison. And he later found out that the father hadn't been abusing his child and that it was actually the mother had made the whole thing up. And so he has had to process the fact that he killed a man, an innocent man.
3: Maori needs space to take, take care of their own. I believe we have the capacity to do it. And that's why I advocate that our people work with our people to heal our people.
2: Everyone was crying. I, I sat there and I was crying. And, you know, you normally have to be, and mm. I try to be very professional in these sort of things, but I just thrown all of that out of the window the past week. Um, yeah, people were wiping their eyes as they stood up and applauded this man who bravely spoke about you know experiences that I think many of us can't even begin to imagine. Just mm. um, torture, yeah. Torture in some, I cases. mean we've we've left a lot of things out of the stories. But there was a, one state home or care home. They there was this thing called the concrete pill,
1: and this is where four staff members would hold a teenage boy by each of their limbs, haul them up, and then drop them on the
2: concrete. It was just a punishment for speaking out or for doing things that kids would do. And there's another thing. A boy who was in care, they thought that he may be hiding drugs up his rectum, and so they put a hose up there and pumped water into him for four or five days. We heard from Robert Martin, who uh, was actually the first person with a learning disability to be... um, Put on the United Nations Committee for the Rights of a Person with Disabilities, and he gave evidence about his time and oh, he was placed in foster homes and hospitals and um, in different care homes from the age of I think he was 18 months old. He his brain was damaged during birth, and he spoke about being sexually assaulted. He was um, in care. In care. That was in a um, kind of an older cottage for boys. It broke my heart he was talking about you know, the things that children growing up took for granted and he was talking about how children would grow up and they'd go to birthday parties and they'd go on trips to zoos and they would feed the ducks and have their own childhood pet and he grew up without all of those things and all he wanted in his life was a cat to cuddle and to be loved, and he didn't get any of those things.
1: And then, so these people, they give the evidence, and what happens to them after that?
2: Well, they give evidence, and I should mention, and I think this is really important, that there are rooms, they've allocated rooms at the hotel, so obviously this is a really draining process for them, speaking about this publicly, and some of them are doing it publicly for the first time. Um, and there are rooms where they can go and speak to professionals about what they've experienced, and there is care for them. But this this inquiry is New Zealand's biggest royal commission ever. And there is four more years of this um, to come. The Governor General will receive a report in
0: 2023 with recommendations.
2: There are lovely things that have happened at this inquiry. Every morning, before they start to give evidence, uh, everyone stands up and the commissioners walk in and they sing a waiata. and every morning it's te because they want to fill the hearing with love. Everyone's singing together about love, and we've heard many times in the past week that people have lost the ability to love. One of the main things that has come up in this inquiry is the disproportionate number of Māori who were placed in state care. And on the second day we heard from Dr Oliver Sutherland and Sir Kim Workman, who have worked in this this field for years. Sir Kim Workman was a youth aid officer in the 1970s and Dr Oliver Sutherland has researched this and advocated for, for abused children for years. Dr Oliver Sutherland has kind of crunched the numbers, in between 1967 and 76, I think he had Justice, New Zealand Justice um, figures or something, there were more than 116,000 children placed before the courts, and 41% of them were Māori. And Sir Kim Workman talked about how the police force back in you know between the 1950s and 1970s saw young Mardi as this well, Mardi in general as this dangerous underclass, and he it's almost unbelievable. But the police commissioner in the early um, 1960s said that policing was for white races only, and he refused to recruit Chinese, Indians, and people from the Pacific Islands. You know, that's how so many people, so many Māori were placed in care was because, you know, the police who were picking them up thought that they were, you know, this, yeah, dangerous underclass. This hearing has scratched the surface of what has happened here and there are thousands of children who now adults or vulnerable adults who will be sharing this their stories if they haven't already with the commission but just in a private space. I've been completely astounded at the how brave these people are and how every almost every single person, almost every single abuse survivor has got up there and said, you know, I'm speaking about this and it is so hard, but I am doing it because I do not want another child to experience what I have. And I mean, God, (laughs) how brave is that being questioned and speaking about some of the darkest chapters of your life to ensure that Other people don't experience the same thing. It is so selfless and it is so powerful and that's really stood out to me.
1: And Katie says that the Commission will continue to hear from survivors in private and in March the public hearings resume with a focus on redress. That's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansel and produced by Alexia Russell. Mā te wa.